Did you guys know the Washington Post was running like a, um, you know how they have the election needle? They had like a snow forecast needle for schools and the likelihood of it being canceled. (laughs) And I only know this because uh, we had a family with two kids in D.C. public school over the night before the first snow day. And D.C. was holding out and they were like, we've been refreshing the Washington Post's uh, snow day forecaster all day. (laughs) When I left home this morning, it was a little bit like I was fleeing out a window. (laughs) Because the kids are home for their third snow day. And uh, I wish them well. It's very Washington. (laughs) And your wife is stuck behind taking care of them. I'm not going to comment on uh that, Jane. I'll uh be back back in an hour after we tape this. I do remember my mom saying that instead of executing people at Nuremberg, they should have sentenced the Nazis to having to get kids in and out of their snowsuits for the rest of their lives. (laughs) It's (laughs) those zippers, those last minute after you've got them all in their mittens and everything else. I have to pee. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> right? that's always the moment that breaks your spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I am Jane Mayer, and I am joined by my colleagues Evan Osnos and Susan Glasser. Hi, Evan. Hey, Jane. Hey, Susan. Hey, guys. Well, the Iowa caucuses are finished. The New Hampshire primary is just around the corner, and the 2024 election has officially kicked off. Over the last few weeks, we've asked you to send us your questions about American politics, and you delivered. So today, we're going to answer, or at least try to answer, some of them. There were a few common themes that came up. It's always interesting to see what's on the audience's mind. And a couple of common themes came up, particularly around how we in the media should cover a Trump-Biden rematch, should that be what we have. There were also some wonderful wild cards, which we'll get to later in the show. But to start, so many of your questions were about how to approach Trump's third bid for the White House, which is already more radical than his previous two. But I'm curious, before we get to listeners' specific questions about it, how are you two thinking about where the Trump campaign is right now and how we should cover it? Evan, you want to take this on? Uh, Yeah, I was thinking about the fact that, believe it or not, we are now nine years into covering Trump as a political figure. I mean, it started in 2015. And that means that actually at this point in time, there are really lessons learned. And I do think that we've learned uh, about ways of doing it better. One of the themes that you hear a lot these days that's going around is the idea of cover not the odds, but the stakes, meaning what is at stake? I mean, and, and you're seeing that. It was Jay Rosen, who was a, a journalism professor who, who laid that idea. And that's, that is what's running through a bunch of these pieces about what a second term for Trump would be like. I, I think one piece that for me resonates, and it, I think maybe it has to do with the way the New Yorker approaches things, is something that Tom Rosenstiel wrote. He was a media critic at the LA Times for a long time. And he says, you know, focus on the biography, which is to say not old chestnut stories, not, you know, the ancient anecdotes we all know about these two guys, but the ways in which their lives, their character, the ways that they treat people, how that intersects 
with policy and the impact on the country, rather than, God knows, who's up and who's down at every hour of every day. You know, I remember the Washington Post used to do start every presidential campaign with really deeply in-depth biographical pieces. Um, David Marinus was one of the, right. the absolute pros at this. And I haven't seen as much deep, deep reporting like that um, as, as there was. Susan, I'm wondering, what what do you think? Are there any particularly great examples, you think, of Trump coverage? Well, I mean, I, I beg to differ on the, on the biography. Uh, Evan, I'm glad you made the point about um, how many years we've been dealing with this exact same question of how to cover Trump as we head into the th- third and possibly culminating moment uh, uh, in terms of presidential elections. But, you know, it's been so long that, you know, back in the first campaign, I was the editor of Politico and Politico magazine, and we devoted an entire issue of our print magazine in the spring of 2016 to this exact question. And I actually gathered together five extraordinary journalists who had already written full book length, uh, largely investigative biographies of Donald Trump. And we had this amazing uh, lunch together in the basement of Trump Tower, the Trump Grill. And it was, you know, legends like uh, investigative reporter Wayne Barrett of The Village Voice, who was the first guy and not at all the last guy to do an a, a major investigative biography of Donald Trump to, you know, show, I think, in very convincing ways, even from the late 70s and early 80s on, some of the themes that would be extremely familiar to voters today who have observed him. Uh, Tim O'Brien, who was sued by Donald Trump, uh, he wrote uh, an investigative book about Donald Trump. At any rate, I could go on on this subject, but I I am a believer that uh, biography is one thing. Uh, Look uh, at Donald Trump's actual record in the White House. I'm glad that people are sort of rediscovering that now and, you know, trying to mine that through. Look at things like, will he really withdraw from NATO if he came back in a second term? Things like that. I think that reporting is important. And then one asterisk, Evan, on this issue, I, it's a, it's a, almost a chestnut of, you know, media commentary to be like, oh, they're so horse race focused. But in the case of Donald Trump, one of the phenomenon we've all been documenting over the last few years, it strikes me, is how people just they wanted the phenomenon to be over so much and they just tuned out of Donald Trump. So I do think there is an element of trying to communicate as journalists to people that this is real, it's happening, and what is the the nature of of the possibility. Yeah, I think I'm sort of an asterisk to your asterisk. In a sense, what what is happening is that, to your point, your defense of the horse race is correct, that there it is important for people to know about what's happening, to know that this is a realistic prospect. A relatively low percentage of Americans realize that this is actually going to be a Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. And in that sense, Talking about the state of the race is important. I mean, I, I have I agree with you guys. I think what you're basically saying is all of the above. We need it all. I would also add, I think, a couple things. One, follow people who know how to really do great follow-ups have oh, shown yeah. us that totally it, it right. really matters to be tough in doing these interviews and not get Trump is a very intimidating character. Um, you know, big presence and it takes a, a lot of guts to go one-on-one and really follow up with him when they do these interviews. And and only a few people have really done it well, I think. The Jonathan Swan interview. I For mean, instance, that is the exactly. clinic. There are those that say, you can test too much. You do know that. 
Who says that? Oh, just read Who? the manuals, read the books. Manuals? Read the what books. Manuals? Read the books. What books? What testing does? Who, no, sorry. I mean, just simple follow-ups. The what, why, who, all of those things really trip up a candidate who is planning to just steamroll right over. I mean, and I think, you know, from my standpoint anyway, um, not also not letting this issue of getting access um, mm. as a, a reporter. If they don't give you access, don't let that stop you. Yeah. Keep going. Um, you know, you don't always need them to be in the room. You just need to really push hard to report around it then. That's a really important point, Jane. And and one of the things to the issue of where I'd like to see more right now or what's different, one of the things is that Trump is extremely malleable to those who surround him. And right now, I feel like we don't have as good of a beat as we should on who is surrounding him day to day. What is his life like in this bizarre reality at Mar-a-Lago? the nature of uh, those conversations. For example, we found out, and it later emerged through some great investigative reporting, that there was a reclusive billionaire, Ike Perlmutter, who was essentially running the Department of Veterans Affairs during the Trump uh, uh presidency. I noticed just the other day that Perlmutter is is one of those big Republican donors who remains on the Trump train. Uh, that, that would have been much more interesting to know more about. And Donald Trump, because he doesn't really have fixed policy views, you know, he has certain longstanding inclinations, as we all know, but he um, he's very open to picking up messages from those around him. It's why who his aides are matter. It's why who he picks for a cabinet if he comes to a second term matters. So that kind of reporting, I think I'd like to see a lot more of. I agree. I mean, and uh, we we should probably move on. But I I just to say that I think the story behind the story is the one that we've got to deliver for readers and, and, and listeners, which is, you know, it's not just the candidates. It's who's behind them, who's around them. What's the money? What's the religious organizations? How does the media ecosystem work? All of these things are really important, and Trump is not necessarily just the protagonist. But um, anyway, let's go to a a listener question. Um, This one comes to us from Pam in New York. Hi, my name is Pam Chernoff from Terrytown, New York. My question is about polling and the reliability of polling. My impression is at this point, polls mostly reflect the opinions of those who are willing to answer their phones when an unknown number pops up and thus skew older and seemingly more conservative. Am I wrong to be this skeptical? Hmm. Evan, what do you think? (laughs) I often find myself uh, asked about this or talking about this question of how good are the polls right now? I think people are just really curious about it. And part of it is, I mean, if you go back to the origins of polling, and you guys will have thoughts on this for sure. If you go back to the origins of polling, I remember George Gallup wrote a book back in the 40s called The Pulse of Democracy, which kind of created this idea that 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 was going to be what polls could deliver, this almost sort of supernatural uh, insight into what we really want. And of course, it's never been that way. And I think it's incredibly tempting to want to say, give us this crystal ball of what's going to happen. And pollsters are the first people to tell you we are useful, we're valuable, but we're not a pulse. We're like a fuzzy mirror in the sense that that is useful. It's better than not having a mirror, but you have to be aware of the limitations. A A couple thoughts just on the state of it today. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, to Pam's question, were felt scorched by the experience of 2016, where they were shocked totally. that Hillary Clinton lost to Donald yeah. Trump. 
in polling terms, in sort of strict terms, the truth was actually that year the polls weren't that bad, actually, on a national basis. What they predicted was that the race was very close. They thought that Hillary Clinton had about a three percentage point lead. And in the end, uh, she actually did win the popular vote, after all, by two percentage points. So it wasn't all that far off. Where it was wrong, catastrophically wrong, was on the state level, particularly in the upper Midwest, in Michigan, uh, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, where it turned out that actually they were so close that they were wrong. And as a result, those three states were enough to, as we all know, award the election to Donald Trump. And why were they wrong? A couple reasons. One, to Pam's point, yes, fewer people are picking up the phone today simply because there's so much spam. People don't trust random numbers. So you get a much lower response rate on the phone. So pollsters have had to learn to rely on other things. There were also in 2016 a lot of last-minute deciders, people who made their choice really just down to the wire in the last couple of weeks, and that wasn't picked up in the polling. And then the third piece that was important was that the polls were structured in a way that underweighted Republicans without college degrees. And as we all know, they turned out to be a much more important piece of the overall outcome than we understood. In 2020, polls were also really bad. uh, But in 2022, they pretty accurately predicted what happened in the midterms. And so just to give you a sense of and then I'll, I'll belt up. That does not mean that you get a trend line over time of them getting consistently better. What you find is that polls will almost predictably they will be wrong, and it is not clear from year to year if they will be wrong in one direction or another. It's not a, it's not reliably biased in one direction. If 16 and 20 were less accurate and 22 more so, the midterm election, I wonder if any of this is a phenomenon that I've heard people talk about, which is Trump shyness at the poll. Basically, yes, people right. who support Trump don't want to admit it. Um, but they, when they actually get in there, they will they they will vote for him. I don't know, Susan. What do you think? Do you how do you regard the polls as you're working? Well, I, look, I should a disclosure here and disclaimer. I'm I'm a board member of the Pew Research Center, which is a terrific nonpartisan independent uh, research organization. You know, in my view, and many others, it's really a gold standard place. And mm-hmm. I have listened to and been fascinated by the ongoing conversation. Uh, around uh, their profession. And uh, Evan is absolutely right that the the decline uh, in reliability of polling and the reliability of old methods is a huge uh, change. So part of the problem is that you've seen uh, kind of the junking up of this information space in the same way that <laughs> is true with words, right? So you have a ton of junk polls now uh, competing with space or evaluated on the same uh, basis by news organizations as the really gold standard polls. So, you know, you have groups that are spending a ton of money to get it right, that are, you know, statistically modeling their response rates that are, you know, doing, you know, really all the things that you need to do to be accurate. And then there'll be some like online poll, you know, click here that is, uh, you know, included uh, and given the same weight for what the public sees. So number one, I would say is really this question of, uh, reliability comes from the market being flooded with a lot of things of, you know, dubious or poor quality. Number two, there is the question of who is responding to surveys or how the surveys are modeled, because, of course, they have the ability to statistically model to get the demographically correct uh, response that they're seeking. The problem is 
who is the electorate is changing. And so is this poll going to be a poll of registered voters? Is it going to be a poll of likely voters? What is your likely electorate? And uh, also turnout has actually gone up rather than down. It had been going down in the United States for years. But now that the perceived stakes for democracy are so high, you have uh, turnout in key groups going up rather than down. So that makes it much harder to say with accuracy year in and year out who's actually going to show up and vote in our elections, because historically we have much lower turnout uh, than in many other democracies. So, you know, it's not like 100 percent of the voters turn out. So it's kind of a guessing game. Huh. That that sounds absolutely right. There's one other category of mm. polling story that I I always wish to see, which is um, what are the candidates doing with the polls? I, I have to admit, I once dated a presidential pollster. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. So I could see when the numbers came in, what the campaigns did with them. And what's wow. always interested me is the extent to which American politicians are driven by the polls as opposed to just, you know, giving this information to the public. And, and you know, I mean, I, I wonder how different are Biden's and Trump's um, attitudes towards the numbers. Um, Pam's question about Mm. people not answering their phone is, I think, connected to this question we got from Tom in California, who writes, quote, the prospect of a Trump-Biden rematch exhausts and depresses me already. How big a factor do you think fatigue and existential dread will play in the outcome of this election. Mm. Two things. One is there there is a useful service that is done after big elections where people will go back who are real experts in polls and will say who was right, who was wrong, who was accurate. And one of the things you discovered, 538 did it after the 22 midterms and discovered that there are some polls that are much more reliable than others. So the top of the list last time was Suffolk University and the New York Times and Siena College polls. Those are very accurate. The least accurate uh, were way down these very sort of uh, basically undiscussed guys, right wing polls, things like Ascend Action or the Trafalgar Group, these kinds of things um, are essentially political instruments. But, you know, but this question of how you combat fatigue. So part of combating fatigue or or despair is to feel like you have more information to be knowledgeable about what you're reading. And I think uh, knowing which polls are reliable is one way. The other way is that I read a great book recently by Kyle Chaka, one of our colleagues at The New Yorker, which is about the way that algorithms mess with us online, feeding us what we read and are in some ways manipulating our diets. And the takeaway, the reason I mention it here is that one of his solutions is go local. When you're thinking about what you're reading, when you're thinking about your action, pull yourself for a moment out of this homogenized, nationalized political discussion and figure out what's happening in your area or in an area you care about and figure out what are the issues, who are the people. It's more manageable. It's 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 less likely to be manipulated by the full national political conversation. Agency. That's what people want is agency. And I think that's why there is a feeling of, you know, just throwing up your hands. And how is it possible that uh, the vast majority of the country, Democrats and Republicans, by the way, can say, I don't want a a rematch this year between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And yet uh, somehow everybody feels powerless to prevent that, uh, you know, but when all else fails, especially on a snow day, I, my my view, once again, is contrarian, which is it's perfectly fine to get back into bed and to, to pull up the covers as long as you <laughs> do show up and make sure you show up and vote uh, in November. But 
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll look at some more of your questions. Here's another question we got. It's about how to cover the money in this election. How important are donor sources to the understanding of the candidates? And should we all be paying more attention to who funds the politicians? I promise I didn't plant this question, (laughs) but I have to say it uh, speaks to my heart. Please, would you? I I mean, I do think you're obviously in the best position. What what do you think? uh, You know, I I think that the people who, reporters who cover money are sort of treated as kind of a subspecies of political reporter, kind of like the, you know, mechanical experts who cover the auto industry or the the doctors who covers health or something like that. And I think that's a big mistake because, uh, you know, money is the story. It's behind everything that's happening in American politics at this point. And it's also, it's changing. There's a sort of a weariness about it, but it's exploding in the amount of money there is. Already in 2024, there is six times as much money that's been spent in this race as there was in the last presidential election. Wow. So, I mean, and I think the problem is the coverage of money and the financial, you know, regulations on campaigns, they're kind of designed to put people to sleep. Mm. It's so boring and in the weeds. I think that it's a real challenge to try to explain to readers why it matters. You got to connect the dots. You got to explain why is Jamie Dimon, a man worth $1.8 billion, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, now making nice and friendly um, comments about Donald Trump. What's in it for him? Mm. Um, you know, I, take a look at what Trump did in when he was president. He talks like a, a populist. Who? What did? He, what was the most important thing he did domestically? He passed a gigantic tax cut for corporations. Uh, the rich got so much richer during his presidency. He, you know, his record is completely the opposite of of the image that he's portraying as the champion of the working man. You know, so you've really got to bring it home and show what is it the people putting those millions and millions of dollars into politics want and what are they getting? Mm. Well, and it actually, this year is a very interesting kind of case study in the Republican donor class, a, a significant chunk of which actually tried to make, you know, the, the much vaunted jailbreak from Trump. And that actually is very interesting to me. First, some of them went to Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. Uh, then more recently, there's been a group that has been supporting Nikki Haley. Uh, so it shows the limits of money. Now, the interesting thing, though, is that the lack of transparency right now, and that's a direct result of the Supreme Court, Gene has covered this better than anybody. It's an influence over the agenda that is almost impossible to really document, like, you know, like the billionaire Ike Perlmutter and his influence over the Trump uh, administration that we talked about earlier in the Veterans Administration. And I just I think that is metastasizing. I was just talking with a very senior uh, political operative the other day. We were talking about this. They said, you know, what a joke that is. Uh, They said, you know, people don't even pretend to observe the distinctions between campaigns and super PACs that they're supposed to. And the answer that person gave, again, it sounds boring to Jane's point, which is partially why people don't pay attention. The Federal Election Commission, which is supposed to be the uh, watchdog agency, is a complete joke, not set up to police this enormous sum 
lumps of money. And at the end of the day, the political operative said to me, so what? So you get a $500 fine five years from now. Uh, and so basically, mm. there's no distinction between these super PACs and the campaigns. Absolutely true. Yeah. There are sometimes people married to each other where one runs the independent expenditure that's not supposed to speak yeah. to the campaign where the other spouse is working. Well, I mean, it is it is a, a flimsy joke in many ways, except it's not really very funny. And I think to Susan's point that the fines are so trivial and so remote from the actions that they really, uh, you know, to use the Michael Sandel formulation, they become fees not fines, huh. and that people build it into their expectations. And they say, completely fine. Let's go ahead and break that rule. Well, on to another question. Here's one about a topic that's going to be in the news more and more over the next 11 months, the details of Trump's trials. Hi, I'm Mary Delacula from Huntsville, Alabama. I'm curious about the timeline for the Trump trials uh, with regard to the primaries and the election coming up. I'm also curious about the difference between the state and federal charges and the ramifications. Mostly, if Trump is elected president in November, I assume the New York and state trials will go forward since he could only pardon himself on federal charges. If found guilty in New York or Georgia, could he continue to serve as president? Susan will have thoughts on this. Just briefly, one thing that's interesting is that's true, though I, I, I think Mary makes an important distinction between the state charges and the federal charges, the state cases could, in theory, go forward. But, and this is where they might get stymied, the Justice Department under Trump could say, no, uh, it interferes with the presidency to have him facing these. And so they could be pushed off further down into the future. But Susan, what do you think about that's a really interesting question, I thought. Well, first of all, delighted to have our listener in uh, Huntsville, Alabama. And this is such an unusual campaign, right? This is a courtroom campaign. And yet, we don't even know, at least we know the dates of the primaries and the uh, the conventions. We don't know the dates of these court hearings. And in fact, many of them are probably going to get changed and pushed off because Donald Trump's legal strategy, we do know, and that's delay, delay, delay. And his goal is to bring things as much as possible to a standstill, to disrupt them, to use the courtrooms as a platform, as he's already been doing uh, in appearing in a New York courtroom this weekend, scrapping with the judge in the, the all important political week between Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, it's an amazing spectacle. Uh, I just the other day, uh, it turns out that one of the two federal cases, uh, the court date supposed to start in March could be pushed off. And so, you know, many of the legal experts with whom I speak are very dubious that there will be final verdicts and, you know, all the appeals run through in, in any of these cases before the general election in November. Certainly, we can already see from Donald Trump's quick start in the primaries this week that it's very, very unlikely. It's basically impossible for there to be any kind of legal resolution before the Republican nomination is decided. And I always thought that that was one of the great risk factors of 2024 is that millions of Republicans have gone to the polls or will have gone to the polls and voted for Donald Trump, selecting him as their nominee before uh, he might face a guilty verdict. And so, uh, you know, that's only going to increase the rage factor and the and the division in society. Can he serve in the White House? 
uh, if he's already been convicted of a felony. And remember, he faces 91 felony counts. We don't know the answer to that. The Supreme Court is going to have a very busy and very contentious year with all the appeals that Donald Trump is going to be sending their way of truly unprecedented uh, matters involving the president of the United States. I mean, I may be wrong, but I don't think there's anything in the Constitution that bars someone from being a felon and being president. That's Um, true. And I I sort of have this sense from interviewing people that the more momentum Trump gets, the further he gets towards clinching the nomination, the more basically the Supreme Court is going to feel worried about interfering. Mm. Uh, you know, Bush v. Gore was such a black mark on the, on the court's credibility and legitimacy. It's a very touchy subject for them. But I don't know. We, we shall see. Okay, here's another question. Um, this one is from Mary Ginolat from Chicago, who asks something I think a lot of people are wondering. Who would be hurt more by a third-party candidate, Trump or Biden? Well, let's take the most prominent third-party prospect at the moment. That is this nonprofit organization called No Labels, which is uh, talking about putting together a uh, candidacy. They've, uh, according to the various reports, and there are a lot of them, it could be led by somebody like Larry Hogan, uh, former Republican governor of Maryland, or Chris Christie, former Republican governor of New Jersey, or Joe Manchin, perhaps in the mix there, uh, who is, of course, Democratic senator from West Virginia. The key thing about No Labels is that they have been insistent about not uh, disclosing where their money comes from. Mother Jones uh, did get a hold of a list of some of their biggest contributors. And on that list are people like uh, the billionaire founder of a natural gas company, uh, Republican donors of one kind or another. So I think generally it's perceived that they are trying to position themselves as a center-right alternative, sort of a a version of the old Republican Party before uh, Trump came along. And I think there is a lot of concern among Democrats that that would end up, in a sense, uh, hurting Joe Biden because there are people who might say, well, maybe I don't want to vote for Trump, uh, but I want to find somebody alternative uh, to Biden. So there's a lot of concern about the role that no labels could play among Democrats. All right. Here's the question about the shifting political landscape in part of the country that's rapidly changing. Georgia. Hi, Evan, Jane, and Susan. My name is Al Hartley, and I'm a consultant based outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And my question is actually about my home state of Georgia. Uh, I grew up here and moved back in 2021. So I was curious to ask you all, what in your eyes makes the political dynamics of the state unique? What does it say about how America is changing? And do you think it's a symbol of American power shifting southward or American political power shifting southward? All right. Well, listen, I think those are, you know, great, although I'd love to get our uh, listener on the phone and interview him to get some of the answers. (laughs) You know, Georgia is a fascinating case to me. It's sort of the front line of the demographic and political change in the country. And Joe Biden's victory there in 2020, it was it was the thing that rankled Donald Trump, perhaps more than anything. You know, he was used to this idea that uh, the Republican Party in some ways has become the party of the South. And uh, ever since 
Richard Nixon's Southern strategy. And, you know, the last great realignment in American politics, there was a view that this was uh, where it was at. Georgia hadn't elected uh, Democratic senators in years up until 2020. And so, you know, there was a sense that this couldn't happen. And I think that's why Donald Trump made this a centerpiece of his, quote, rigged election lies about the 2020 outcome. And it now remains, of course, a, both a political but also a legal battleground as we continue to sift through the records of 2020. Interestingly, it may not go Democratic again. Uh, certainly, if you look at recent polls for our previous conversation, this is one of the battleground states in which uh, Biden is, uh, at the moment, at least early in the race, uh, trailing Donald Trump significantly. It, look, it's got it's got a key uh, uh, part of the electorate, which is very, very Democratic, which is uh, black voters. Uh, there's a large and growing black middle class professional class in Georgia. It's also got Atlanta, uh, a much more, you know, sort of urban centerpiece of the New South. And, and that's one of the reasons why Democrats have targeted it in recent years. I think we're just seeing a battle over what is kind of the the front line uh, that divides red America from blue America. In some ways, it's been pushing south. You know, Virginia's gone Democratic uh, more in recent years, but now has a Republican governor. North Carolina is kind of a battleground. Georgia, those are the three states that really, I think, are the ones in question, the rest of the South being very, very solidly Republican and these ones being more up in the air. I mean, I think it's also no coincidence that Georgia is a state where there have been just absolutely um, all-out battles over election law. There's been a lot of litigation, and remember Stacey Abrams is, is from Georgia, who has really led a fight to try to get those black voters who Susan's talking about that are such a key part of the electorate and get them to the polls. And there's just as, as fierce a pushback from the old white patriarchy in the state that is doing everything it can to close those polls down. So, I, I mean, it is, as you say, a forefront of where this sort of dividing line is. And I have to tell you, I mean, this gets to the whole spirit of this show, the this week's episode. I, I It is terrific to hear from people who are looking at our politics, not from Washington. So I, I have to say, I think this has been kind of thrilling to have these questions. And I'm glad people are, are as curious about it as we are. Well, OK. So then to close out, uh, Lindsay Flower asked a question that many of us have asked recently. Where is Trump's family. She, <laughs> she also wanted to know how much politicians' families actually matter. Can they swing votes? You guys, what do you think? Where where are they? Well, especially where is Jared and Ivanka, right? They have, that's the big kind of, you know, breakup uh, story of the last few years is how the two most prominent family members in the Trump White House have really stepped aside and and not participated in an active public way in this campaign. Ivanka used to be Donald Trump's sort of favorite daughter. He was even promoting her for vice president uh, on his ticket in 2016, uh, a suggestion that his own campaign advisors thought was a joke the first, you know, gazillion times he mentioned it. But actually, uh, they even included her in polls uh, that the campaign did in 2016 to try to figure out who would be the best vice presidential candidate. And no more. Uh, you know, Ivanka and, and Jared have moved on uh, to other things. And of course, there's the where's Melania question. Evan, uh, you know, Absolutely. I'm curious what you think about yeah. the first lady 
factor here. Oh, man. I mean, I think just to go to the other side of things for a second, I mean, the, the irony is Joe Biden can't go three sentences without talking about his family. That is his core. And I mean that with with sincerity. I mean, it, I uh, will be writing more about this, actually, in our magazine before too long. But it is one of the places that he goes to try to um, make sense of and seek refuge from what are the agonies of politics in, in 2024. So families matter in politics. That's for sure. Thanks to everyone who sent us questions. We really enjoyed reading them and at least trying to answer them. And uh, we'll be checking our mailbox throughout the election. So if you have any questions for us, don't be shy. Send them to themail at newyorker.com. Again, that's themail at newyorker.com. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia and Dan Richards. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>